Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Matthew chapter 22. Hold a finger when you find Matthew chapter 22. Hold a finger in Matthew 22. And then also, I want you to turn with me real briefly to Exodus chapter 12. Now, I want us to put us in context of where we are in our study of the the gospel of Matthew. It was just actually a chapter ago, although it probably feels like an eon ago, that Jesus began his final week of his life. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a, anybody? Donkey. How many of you guys were listening to Erwan or Caleb this morning and saw the donkey thing with the little kid? Anybody? Okay, you have to hear it. It'll be on the radio all day today. You'll just check it out when you're there. Um, 107.5, K-Love. Is it K-Love or Air One? I always get the two mixed up. K-Love. So have that tuned on in your radio. And there's a little kid story. It's kind of a funny story. But anyways, so Jesus rides into town on a donkey. And that begins his final week. That's a Sunday. We call that traditionally in church, we call that Palm Sunday. Because a week from that Sunday is what we call Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. So sometime between him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and dying on a cross, he, he, he dies on the cross and rises again a day later. Now, each one of the Gospels spends a particular, a, a, a large amount of time on this last week of Jesus's life. Now, Matthew, more so on the time Sunday to Sunday. When you get to John's Gospel... John focuses about Thursday, John picks up. When, they, when they're in the, the Last Supper, the upper room, that's where John picks up the details. And John spends seven, eight chapters at the end of the Gospel of John just going over a 48-hour period of Jesus' life, seven chapters to cover two days of Jesus' life. Where Matthew, about the end, from chapter 21 till the end of the book, we got 28 chapters in, in Matthew, um, covers a week of time. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, the reason why I have you hold a finger in Matthew and turn to Exodus 12, let me draw your attention to verse number 3. And it says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the, what's that day? 10th of Nisan. It says this month, that month is Nisan. It's their um, first of the year. Um, Nisan usually coincides with our, anybody? March, April time of the year. It's, it's Passover, and Passover depends on the, the, the lunar calendar, and that's why sometimes uh, Easter is in March, sometimes it's in April. But this month of Nisan is Passover. It coincides with Passover. So on the 10th day of Nisan, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. And if his household is too small, For the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be, anybody still with me? Without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And now you shall keep it until the, somebody, 14th day of the same month. So according to the book of Exodus... The Passover lamb. Now, you understand Jewish culture, right? And you understand that in Israel, they have a little bit of a problem today because they, they, they don't believe in the Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus. They, they focus and study on the Torah, the first five books of the law and, and the prophets and only the Old Testament. But, but according to the Old Testament, the custom is that you bring a lamb and you sacrifice him. And one of the problems that Judaism has today is that without a temple, there are no animal sacrifices. And the reality is you can't follow 
the law of Moses, the way that God prescribed without a temple. And that's why in Israel today, the rabbis, the Orthodox um, rabbis, are, are, they have an entire building, three times the size of this building in the old city of Jerusalem that's dedicated. It's called the Temple Mount Institute. And they are, they are in the process and, of, of designing and rebuilding the, the third temple or the new temple. It's, it's a focus. And they understand the problem they have is that you can't follow the law of Moses without the temple. And so just a Facebook um, uh, story just surfaced. I don't know how many of you guys saw it, but they dedicated in Israel this last week some of the items that are going to be used in the, in the rebuilt temple. Now, what's exciting about it is that they believe that, that the temple is around the corner, that something is going to happen immediately that's going to allow them to rebuild it. And the things that they're preparing in the old city of Jerusalem, these artifacts, the, the bronze laver, the altars, the, everything that needs to go into the temple that God designed, the, the, they have them all on display. And it's not a, it's not a artifact or, or a replica of what would be in the temple. It's the actual items that they have created and and built and and are preparing that will actually go in the third temple now we know because we read the whole bible that the third temple is coming and that god prophesies that after the rapture of the church and after jesus comes for the bride the antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with israel for seven years he's going to break that peace treaty in the middle but the but that peace treaty that the antichrist makes with Israel will allow them, part of it will be, he will allow them to build their third temple. So, so here in the book of Exodus, we have this process that is very well known. It's cultural, it's Israel, it's thousands of years of, of Jewish history that on Passover, everybody would come to the temple and would bring a lamb. And God had provisions. If you were a wealthy family, you could afford a lamb for your family, you were required to bring a lamb. If you didn't have enough, you could get together with your neighbors and you could go halves on a lamb. If, if you still couldn't afford it, you could bring other things, turtle doves. And there were some other things prescribed in the law of Moses that would allow you to come. And the law of Moses said that if you were able body and you, you, you practically could make the journey that you were required once a year in Passover to go to Jerusalem to the temple. Now, um, at the time of Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice, the city of Jerusalem would have been 10 times the normal size with all the tourists and all the people that were coming from all over in order to sacrifice. The lambs that would have been prepared from all the people and all the Jewish people that were observing Passover. So it doesn't matter where you lived in the land, you came and you brought a lamb. You remember that Jesus was overturning the money tables because all of these travelers were bringing these sacrifices into the temple and they were ripping the people off and telling them that their sacrifices weren't good enough. Because we just read in Exodus that God says that the, the lamb had to be without blemish, a male of the first year. It had to be perfect. God wouldn't allow you to offer something to him that, that didn't cost you something, that, didn't, that wasn't perfect. And more importantly than just God is not going to allow you and I to offer him secondhand goods, he wants our first fruits, he wants our best, is that the lamb is a picture of his son. The lamb is a replica of Jesus. It's a type of Jesus that, that God created for thousands of years to say one day, instead of putting this lamb upon the altar every year in Passover, I'm going to put my son upon the altar and he's going to die. And that's why today, rightfully so, we don't need animal sacrifices and the sacrifice lamb because the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died on a cross, rose again the third day. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus for the first time, how did he describe him? 
the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Not a lamb, the Lamb of God. When Abraham brought Isaac up onto Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, I saw a great picture, and it has Abraham's hand, and he has the knife, because in the Hebrew language, it's as if Abraham started the thrust, and the angel stopped him and said, stop. And the angel's holding his hand. And, and, and when the angel stopped him, God said to Abraham, look, in, in, the, um, in the bush is a ram caught in the thicket. And then it says, very importantly, God will provide himself a lamb. It doesn't say God will provide for himself a lamb. That would change the entire meaning. It says God will provide himself as the lamb. And Jesus, who's God, himself comes in the place of that lamb. And so Jesus, here in our story, where we are, to catch it in context, Jesus has come into um, Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Anybody take a wild guess the actual day? We studied this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. If you're not sure, go to Exodus chapter 12 again and read verse number 3. It'll tell you what day Jesus came into Jerusalem. On the 10th day of Nisan, Jesus just happens to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then it says that the, that, the, that the lamb of God that was brought for sacrifice on the 10th day would be killed on what day? The 14th day. And what would happen from the 10th day to the 14th day? They would examine the lamb. They would be checking it to see if it was for sure without blemish. Maybe it looked good immediately, but after a couple days, it had a limp that you didn't notice. And so they would, God said you had to observe the lamb. You had to examine it. You had to be checking it out for four days before you could sacrifice that lamb. And then on the fourth day, actually five days total, because the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 makes five days. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday brings us to somewhere Thursday. Jesus died on a Thursday, Friday, I think Thursday, some people think Friday, um, time frame. But it's the exact model that God laid out for the Lamb of God that would be slain. And so what's happening is what we've been studying, and if you remember the last couple of weeks, and if you want to, you can go back and read in Matthew 21, 22, 23. All of the Pharisees are coming, the Sadducees are coming, the lawyers are coming, and everybody is testing Jesus. And, it's, and, and what's happening is the Lamb of God is being inspected to make sure that he is without blemish, he's without sin, and that he's perfect. And just like Pontius Pilate, who's going to say, I find no fault in this man, nobody in our story last week or this week or next week is going to find any fault in the Lamb of God as hard as they try. And believe me, they're given their best swing at it. They're going to go down swinging with these um, trials and, and, and things that they're putting Jesus through. So in context, back to Matthew 22, we're in this four-day period that the Lamb of God was to be <coughs> inspected thoroughly to make sure he was without blemish. And so in, verse 20, in chapter 22, now chapter 22 does take no break from chapter 21. And it says, and Jesus answered, which means the same conversation that he was happen- having in the end of 21 with these people, he picks up in 22. So again, the chapter and verses in our Bibles were added later. They're not necessarily inspired by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures, the words are, but the chapters and verses, they did a really good job, but they added them for our convenience. But sometimes they're in a perfect place and other times they, they kind of break a, 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 a thought here. And this is the same context in 22, same setting. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables saying, 
the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Everybody say king. Who arranged a marriage for his son. So the king is having a wedding. Now when the king had a wedding, it was a big deal. Now you have to understand that in Jewish culture to this day, and um, weddings are very different than they are here in the way we do weddings. You know, you do weddings in like two hours when you get an invite to a wedding, right? Maybe three hours if it took you an hour to get your makeup and your hair did. So then you show up, you go to their ceremony, what I do, you go eat some cake, and then, you know, you talk to, you know, should we leave before the bunny dance or after, you know? And then you, you get out of there and, and, and you go about your way. But a Jewish wedding is not that way. A Jewish wedding is a seven-day celebration. It's a feast that lasts for seven days. Why does a Jewish wedding last for seven days? Because it's a picture, a, a prophetic model of the seven-year period that the church has taken to be with our, with our groom, with our husband, with Jesus. For seven years, or seven years, we're celebrating while God is pouring his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. And so to get invited to a wedding that was a seven-day celebration was a very big deal. And then on top of that, to get invited to a wedding by a king was even a greater deal because if the king could afford to throw a party. And most of the expense in a wedding, in a, in a Jewish cultural wedding, was not put upon any of the guests. It was put upon the, the people who provided and the king who made the wedding. So this king is having a wedding for his son. And whenever you see a king and a son in a, in a parable, it's always a clue, right? Maybe who we're talking about. We're talking about a son in the Bible. There's a good chance we're talking about Jesus. And so it says in verse number, number, two, or number three, and sent out his servant to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle and, and killed all the things that are ready. Come to the wedding. Now the king is almost begging. He sent out an original invitation and people didn't respond. And he comes back with a second invitation. You know, very unlike a king to take that rejection and come back with a heart of, of pleading. A king at that point is, you know, the old saying, off with the head. I invited you to the wedding. You didn't respond. Off with the head. It's very simple. But this king, he's going to get there because he's a king. And that's what they do. But in this king in this situation, rather than, than send out the army, he sends out a second plea. And he begins to tell of the greatness of what he's done for the people that is invited to the wedding. This is going to be a great wedding. I've killed the fatted calf. That means, unfortunately, they didn't eat bacon, or I could say bacon with it. They didn't kill the pigs. They left those. But they did have filet mignon. They had tri-tip, Brazilian style, Santa Maria. I mean, they got down. He said, I've killed the fatted calf. And God, you know, again, we're going to catch the picture very quickly because this is a parable. The word para is, is a Greek word that means alongside. And a bole, a parabole, bole is a truth. It's, it's a truth that, that comes alongside another truth. And so Jesus is telling a story to illustrate another truth in a parable. And we're going to see very quickly that this is about you and I. It's about the Jews. It's about the invitation that God sent out and people didn't receive it. And he comes back with his word, with the, the excellence of who he is and how he loves and what he's done for us. And people still don't respond. And then the king going to get a little upset. And it says, but they made light of it. Wow, they made fun of him. And they went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. Where did they go? One to his and another. What were the things that got in the way of going to a wedding and celebrating the feast of the Lord, the feast of the king? Work, money, business. 
What are the things right now that get in the way? You know what's so funny? In all of these parables, the, 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 the parables, the, the, the equivalents are so equivalent to today. They're so relevant to today. It's the same thing today that so many of us gets in the way of us walking with the Lord. It's life, it's work, it's, it's a farm, it's, it's duties at home and the family and business. And they didn't want to take time to celebrate with the king and come to his invitation because instead they wanted to take care of business or make money or they had excuses. And it says, but when the king, oh, and the, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. So not only did they just not come, they took the king's servants who were coming to bring the invitation and they killed them. Now that obviously, and we've seen that in another parable that Jesus taught. Anybody want to take a stab at what Jesus is making a parallel truth to? He sent the prophets through all the years of Israel. Do you know what they did to Isaiah? They sawed him in half. And it says they sawed him asunder, which means they, they put him on a table saw and they started between his legs and went through the top of his head. They sawed him in half this way, and they killed the prophets. They, they killed those that God sent to tell of this invitation to be a part of his wedding. And Jesus is telling the Jews here in this story, that, that making this parallel, that he sent the prophets and they killed them. And he already told them that in pretty much plain English in the, last, in the, in the parable of the wicked, wicked vine dresser, very similar to this one. And it says, you know, some of these parables are hard to understand. And others like this one are pretty easy. Like the parallels are right on the surface. And it says, um, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies to destroy the murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And now, therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Somebody say bad and good. Do you know in this room there's bad and good people? You know, nobody wants to think, you know, in Christian kind of lingo and circles, because we we believe that nobody is good. The only goodness in you is is by God. And, And you're not good. Like, you don't get to heaven because you're good. You know, and, and so it's kind of like, you know, we talk and we say, you know, like, why do bad things happen to good people? Because there's no good people, you know. I mean, the, 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 there's no good in us. It's of Jesus, you know. But the reality is we, we get it, right? We understand that our righteousness is of God and that we don't get to heaven because we're good. We get to heaven because he's good. And when God looks at us, he sees his son, which is good. But at the same time, listen, I understand, and I, and I want to be careful, right? Because sometimes Christians can be kind of sucking on sour lemons with this stuff. Like, no, nobody wants to think of themselves as a bad person. That's not the point. Like, we all want to, in, in our hearts, think, you know, I'm a good person. And I get that. You know, I, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, the problem is the world uses that line to, to, to be an excuse not to walk with God. I don't walk with God. I don't need to go to church. God knows my heart. God's not going to send a good person to hell. I'm basically a good person. And then, you know, we want to communicate that it's not about being good and bad. It's about being forgiven. And so we say, no, there's no good people. You're not a good person. But that's, that's terrible. Because I don't care who you are. You, you want to believe, and it's rightfully so. And it's okay to want to think you're a good person. Everybody does. We're good people. Just as long as we understand that that good people, being a good person, is not what gets you into heaven. Being a forgiven person gets you into heaven because in the wedding, guess who's there? In the celebration, in the feast, in heaven, guess what kind of people are going to be there? 
If you're not sure, we just read it, and I just asked you to say it out loud. Good and bad. What? What are you saying, Pastor? Bad people go to heaven? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Look at me. <laughs> Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at Peter. Look at the thief on the cross. Bad people that God changed their lives. Look at the Gospel of John, the writer of John. John wanted to murder people when Jesus found him and met him. And by the end of his life, he just wanted to love people because God changed him. And, and the goodness in him was because of the Father and was because of the work that God did in his heart. And good and bad people will be in heaven and good and bad people will be in hell because the issue is forgiveness, is relationship. And when Jesus says to somebody, whether they get into heaven or not, it's not based on good and bad, it's based on relationship because the criteria the Bible lays that Jesus lays down is, whether he knew you or not. Did he know you intimately? Did he know you personally? And that's the criteria. So in this wedding, um, there's good and bad people there. And it says, um, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not having on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here? And with, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him, hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth is a biblical reference to hell. And that's the way that Jesus would describe hell, a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You gnash your teeth because you're in pain. Jesus said another place where the, where the worm doesn't die. And it's, and it's the maggot that, that, that never dies. It doesn't have a 24-hour. It's just eternally disgusting and, and, and awful and thorough. But Jesus mentions it here. And you say, what in the world is going on? This king invites anybody, good and bad people, and he's, he's there and he notices this one guy is standing out because he doesn't have on the proper wedding garment. And the king immediately locks eyes on him and goes to him. And he says, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy's like, he don't know what to say. He's speechless. His wife wasn't there. He could blame it on her, but she wasn't there. And, and, and then the king binds him and sends him to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What in the world is going on? Well, what you have to understand, again, a Jewish culture would understand this very clearly because guess who provides the wedding garments? The king. You didn't, you didn't have to go and, 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 and have your finest dress and everybody would be dressed the way the king would design them. The bride would stand out because everybody else would be, would be dressed the same. The groom would stand out. The wedding had its own, you know, style. And, the, and when you threw a wedding, you know, you, you ever get invited to be in a wedding and, and the, the person who's invited you to be in the wedding says, I got to be careful here. I'm going to offend somebody. You know, hey, come be in my wedding. And I, I picked out these dresses and suits, and they're only like $1,700 a piece, and you got to buy your own. Come be in my wedding. You know, sometimes I get it, right? It's just the way life goes. But that's not what was going down here. They, they didn't, it wasn't like come to the wedding, and then you have to go out and find these expensive, you know, clothes to be fit in. You came just as you were, and the king provided the garments, and this particular guy shows up and everybody's getting dressed and putting on the king's garments. And he says, I don't need those. I'm not wearing those. And he throws his away. 
and he walks into there all haughty and like he's somebody, the only one dressed differently. He's, he's, he's based it on his, his own righteousness, his own um, well-dressedness, and he's coming into the party. And the king is upset, not because the guy couldn't afford it or the guy didn't have the right clothes on. The king's upset because he refused the free gift that the king offered him. And everybody else received it. And this is an exact picture of salvation. It's an exact model of what the Bible says over and over and over again about how we get to heaven. Do you know the, 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 the garment, the biblical garment, and I'm going to show you the scriptures, and I want you to know this and understand this and just know that it's biblical. It's not just reference or made up. It's way God designed it. A garment in heaven is based, it, 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 it's, you, you know, and, and rightfully so, right? Even here on earth, don't you think that, that certain religions, certain people, we ourselves, we put an emphasis on a garment, right? There's something about a garment that is it's biblical, it's, it's, it's spiritual, it's magical. Well, well, the garment that God speaks of in the Bible is, is based on how you get to heaven. And this is basically the way it goes. When you go before the king at the wedding feast, if you don't have on the garment that he provided, you don't get in no matter what. You go to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and, and then Isaiah tells us, let's say you, you were the best dressed goodest, best person in the whole world and, and you wanted to really show up and, and, and show the king that you could dress well on your own. And it says at your very best, Isaiah says, at your very, 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 very best you could do, the best human being that ever lived. I don't know who you, who you think of. And you think of somebody that's just a good person, just really wholesome and spiritual and righteous and never lie, never steal, give you the shirt off their back, just the most complete person there's ever been. That person, the Bible says, Isaiah tells us, who shows up in their own garment, and that's their garment, and they did a pretty good job of it, is like a filthy rag. And that's what it looks like to God, a filthy rag. Should I give you the Hebrew for the term filthy rag, or should we let it go? It means menstrual rag. The term filthy rag in the Hebrew is menstrual rag. So I'll let you do the mind picture but you make a dress of used menstrual rags and then you show up to the wedding. How are you going to look? Ridiculous. And that's what God says. Let me show you. Let, let's take a look at it together so, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Look at Isaiah 61 first. Quickly, Isaiah 61 in verse 10. Somebody say amen when you get there. 61, 10. Anybody? <laughs> All right. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will, re- I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. salvation. My Bible says, did somebody say righteousness? Does some Bibles read righteousness? What's the King James original? Use the King James, right, Rick? What's it say? Salvation or righteousness? Salvation. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself with ornaments, as the bride adorns herself with jewels. One of the places, one of the many places where the Bible equates the garments that he's going to give us with salvation. 
So the biblical idea of how you're dressed is tied directly to the garment. And that's the picture. It's a word picture. But it'll probably be a literal picture one day when we are invited to the great wedding feast of the bride. When we become the bride of Christ and Jesus takes us as his bride. That's the picture where we are in 22. Look at Isaiah 64, 6. Same same area, Isaiah 64, 6. And it says, but we are all un- we are all an unclean thing. All our righteousness, everything we can do in righteousness, are like menstrual rags, filthy rags. Everything you can do is like a filthy rag, will all fade as a leaf and iniquities. Now let's look at the scene in heaven in Revelation. Turn with me if you will. Um, Revelation chapter 19, last part of your Bible, and we'll put it the final, put it all together. Revelation 19 and verse 7. And we're looking at the picture of garments describing our righteousness biblically. And it says in chapter, in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 7, this is the culmination of everything we've been talking about. This is where you and I will be if you're a Christ follower. And this is what we will look like. And it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Who's his wife? That's you. That's me. We are the bride of Christ, and, and, and it's come. Jesus has come. The father said to his son, son, now is time. Go get your bride. And Jesus comes, and he calls the church unto himself, the bride of Christ. And now we're at that scene. It's come. It's happened. The bride has been raised up in the rapture. And we're there as, as, the, as the wife and the bride of Christ. And it says he, that we have made ourselves ready. His wife. You guys see the word his wife there? Is the word his wife capital H or little h? Capital H. So he is God. And whenever that H is capital, it's talking about God. Jesus in this case. Jesus. And then it says in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is what? The righteous act of the saints. And you know what that righteous act of the saints is? It's believing in Jesus. It's simply believing in the one that God sent, receiving the one that God sent. It's not doing good. It's not going to church. It's not paying tithes. It's, not, it's believing in the one that he sent for your salvation. It's believing and trusting God with all of your life. It's surrendering all of your heart and life to this God and saying, I am yours, and and that work is done. Um, Jesus tells us that, and without having to jump around to too many scriptures, uh, Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, and they ask it very point blankly, what is the work of God? And he says the work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus said. So that righteousness there in verse number eight of the saints, that righteous act of the saints. And the reason why I stress that is because I don't want you to reverse the whole um, analogy to say that, yes, they're clothed in, in righteousness, but it's something that they earned. No, it's nothing that you earned. You, 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 you believed and God gave it to you as a gift. And then it says, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So we have this marriage supper of the Lamb where you and I are and we're, we're clothed in the fine linen that God gives us, His righteousness. Do you know how people get in or out of heaven? It's only based on one thing. Everybody's going to face a judgment. 
And for the believer, that judgment is going to be very different than the unbeliever. Because the believer who has been given this garment as a gift, and when you receive that garment of God's righteousness, of Jesus' righteousness, you, you stand before God and he looks at you and he's basing whether you get to go to heaven or hell. And there's only one criteria. When he looks at you, does he see your sins and your menstrual rags that you've made a dress out of? Or does he see the garment that he gave you and you're welcomed into the wedding feast? And if you see the garment... Guess what the garment represents? Guess what the garment is? If you're not sure what the answer is in church, just yell, Jesus! Because it'll be right a lot of the time. The garment is Jesus. It's what Jesus did for you. It's who Jesus is. So when God looks at you, it's real simple. If he sees Jesus, guess where you get to go? To heaven, because he likes Jesus. And if he doesn't see Jesus, unfortunately, your sins remain, and he sees your, gar- he sees your filthy rags. And those aren't allowed. Those aren't allowed in the wedding feast. And unfortunately, like the king in the parable, he's going to send them to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen? Amen. All right, we've got to move on. The good stuff's yet to come in this chapter. And then in verse 15, it says, well, actually, I can't skip this, so I'm going to skip it anyways. Then the king said to the servant, verse 14 says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, listen, that, that's a huge concept that everybody argues and fights over. It brings up the whole Calvinism versus Arminianism. Once saved, always saved. Can you lose your salvation? And, and this is a big old circle that goes round and round. And it takes me a whole service to unpack this verse. Many are called, few are chosen. But in a nutshell, to me, it, it just, it, it solves everything. It doesn't complicate anything. He went out and he invited who to the wedding? Who was invited? Was there a select few that that the king kind of picked that he wanted? Everybody was invited. And how many came? Few came. There's those that say, you know, only the elect get to go to heaven. Only those that God chose. And if you're not preordained, then you're not going to go to heaven. And, and if you are preordained, you can't go to hell. You can live your life however you want, but you're going to get it right because God, God chose you and you can't make a mistake. The other side says that God invited everybody and those that believe become the chosen. And that's just the skinny of it for me, that, that everyone is invited for God loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the angel announced, is for all people, all people. And, and so just, again, I, we could spend a whole Sunday on that verse. Um, we're not going to. We'll let you kind of wrestle and struggle with that one through your walk until God tells you what it means. And in verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with Herodias, saying, Teacher, we know that you are a true teacher and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. You are no regarder of persons. Like, you don't respect one person over the other because he's rich and this guy's, you know, this or that. You love everybody the same. You treat everybody the same. You don't care if the guy's the president of the United States or a bum on the street. You love them all the same. We know that you're a teacher and that you're no respecter of persons and and that you're, you're an equal opportunity lover. But... You know, there's no truth in a sentence before the word but. The only thing that matters is what comes after the big but. Right? I pick up my son a little bit. He loves it when I do this. But every once in a while he'll say, Dad, I'm not trying to be rude, but. You guys ever say that? You ever hear somebody say that? 
And then whatever he says after is all that really matters. And he says something rude about somebody that one of you guys in church, but hey, you know, this guy in church, he was doing, you know, and tells me some story or something, you know, and, and, and really whatever you say before the but doesn't matter. It's only after the but. And I don't care how many prerequisites you give it, you know, I'm not trying to be rude, but, you know, it's only what you say after the but that matters. Well, these, they come and they try to butter Jesus up. And we know it's all a crack, right? A crock because they, they're plotting to trap him. It's during the, the, the period where they're, they're investigating, they're checking the lamb to see if there's any, any fault in him. And as you see this progression, he's being hit from all different kinds of angles and all different kinds of, of people. You know, it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and then in the next group, is the Sadducees are coming. In this group, it's the Pharisees. It's going to be a lawyer in the next group. And it says, they said, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they, again, these, these were not just seat of the pants, fly by the moment questions that they would come and try to trap Jesus with. They were lawyers, they were um, theologians, they were professors, and, and they knew Jesus was no easy bag. They knew that they, knew that they, they really had to be sharp with these questions if they were going to trap him. And so they would spend lots of times in big groups and they would circle and they would go back and forth until they could come up with some trap, some problem that he could not answer. And so, the, so Jesus makes them look stupid in all these questions. Like his answer is just like, duh. But just know that these questions were, were, were timely. They were crafted. They were, they were worked on really, really hard before they came to him with them. And so they come to him and they're like, and every time I'm sure they finally came to an agenda at the end of one of these meetings, they thought, man, this one is going to get him. We finally got him nailed. And they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? No matter what he answers, he's done. Because if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he's, a, he's an insurrectionist against Rome. And he's violated crime against, against the government. If he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he knows that the Jews will never stand for that. Because the Jews feel like they're in occupied territory and that they're being oppressed by the Roman soldiers and they're expecting Messiah to overthrow Rome and set them free from this oppression. And so no matter what he answers, we got him. And so Jesus perceived their wickedness. Was their question a question of sincerity? No, it was a question of wickedness. Because Jesus perceived they were wicked. And I want to warn you guys as Christians. Be perceiving, be, um, you know, discerning when somebody asks you certain questions. We've talked about this a ton. There's times when somebody are being like these guys. And did they come up and say, Jesus, we can't stand you. And you're wrong and you're stupid. And we, this is a question. Is that, is that how they approached him? They came with flattery. You are such a good teacher. You are so smart. You love all people. Man, you're great. Now answer this question. And sometimes people will come to you that way. They come to you, oh, yeah, it's great, great, now I answer this. But listen, if you perceive in your heart that, that it's, it's wickedness or that it's not just uh, a sincerity, now if anybody comes with the same exact question and has a sincere heart, please answer their question. But I want to tell you, you have a pass. You have a green light from Jesus because he did it. If, if somebody, if you perceive, and, and, the, and the way Jesus said it was he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. And if you perceive that that person is a swine and they're just there to argue, they really have no heart to learn or change, you can kindly, tactfully pass and just put it back on them. You know, the the example I gave you guys a couple Sundays ago was just ask them, well, let me ask you a question. 
who do you believe, you know, do you believe the word of God is, is the final authority on, on morality? Do you believe the word of God is the final authority on what's true and what's, what's a lie? Do you believe that the, the word of God is, is 100% inspired by God and accurate? And if they won't answer that or they don't believe that, then, then you don't have to answer their question either because we're talking about apples and oranges. So he says, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Jesus was so nice. He was so loving. Just like we're supposed to be as Christians, love each other. He said, you hypocrites. He just called it like it was. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. I, I think Jesus must have been laughing and smiling here. And he's like, flips it back to him. And he's like, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and they left him and went their way. Catch the magnitude. They, they, they marveled at the answer. They thought there was no way Jesus would wiggle out of this one. We got him nailed. We got him dead to rights. And they just went away thinking, wow, he just, he just you can't. Like he has the, the words of God. He has the words of life. And he just told them, you know, the things that are Caesar's render to Caesar's. You know, that's, that's the same truth for you and I today. It's, it's going to be tax season here pretty soon. So we're in a tax scripture, so maybe we should talk about you guys not cheating on your taxes. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God's going to bless it. You cheat on your taxes and you make an extra 500 bucks, that's what we call, the Bible calls, ill-gotten gain. And guess what the Bible says about things that you receive ill-gottenly without God's blessing? It says that they'll, they'll, they'll burn in the place that you put them, and they'll burn anything you put them around. So you put it in your wallet, and you got an extra couple hundred in there. You put it in your bank, and you got some more numbers around it. Not only will it go to nothing, it'll burn up what's around it, and you'll end up worse off than you started. So be honest. If it costs you an extra 500 bucks, put it in God's economy, and God will bless you. Multiply that beyond what you would have stolen or what you would have got ill-gottenly, and, and just do it right into the Lord. Now, on the flip side of that, I don't believe in, and Jesus never taught that we have to give to Caesars anything that's not Caesars. So any deduction, anything you can do, any loophole, anything that's legal in the law, you use it, you do it, and, you know, you, you don't have to give to Caesar one extra penny that's not his. But the things that are Caesar's render unto Caesar's, and the things that are God's render unto God. And then in verse 23, it says, The same day, so we're still in this season, right? We're in this four-day period from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th, where the Lamb of God is being inspected. And now it's the Sadducees' turn. Um, who say there is no resurrection. So uh, maybe you're new to church and maybe you, you don't know and maybe you've been here long and this is old hat, I'm sorry. But the, if you don't, quickly, several groups of um, Jewish religious folks in Jesus' day. The two big ones we talk about all the time are called Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees would be, and this is a bad analogy, but it just makes it easy to understand Republican and the Sadducees would be Democrat or vice versa. It would be two basically political parties with different opinions. But in Jesus's day, the, there, there was no lines between political and religious. The Sanhedrin, which was also the governing body, the political body, was made up of 70 members like our Senate or Congress. They made the laws. They made the, they made the religious laws, the, the, the social laws, the criminal laws. They made all the laws. They enforced them. It was the governing body. It was called the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees and a few other kind of outer line groups that might fit into that group of 70. So now it's the Sadducees' turn. Now, the Sadducees, they were sad, you see, because 
they didn't believe in the, the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They, they, they believed in the Torah. They believed in the first five books of Moses. They believed in Yahweh. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they didn't believe there was a resurrection. And so because they didn't believe in their theology that there was life after death, they posed this really ridiculous question that, that Jesus has to answer. And let's see how he does with it. They said to him, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, the third, all the way to the seventh. They all died. They, they, they had her. They didn't have any kids. Last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Um, will she be for they all had her? So they all married her. They all consummated the marriage. They all died before they had kids. Now, basically, quickly, and I'm running out of time, so I can't get into it. I was going to go through just real quickly. Um, this, this is called a, a Leverite vow that God put into the law of Moses. Now, some of the things that God put into the law of Moses were to preserve the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of life, and, and it worked because miraculously, in AD 70, Jews were spread all over the world with no homeland, and they lived for 1,800 years abroad in places all over the world, and they've maintained their health, their identity, their language, their culture. Everything that God in, included in the law of Moses had so much to do with this. So in a Leverite vow that God created, um, if, if you, if, in order to preserve the tribes and the name, that, that a son, the oldest son, should have kids that would have, carry his name and his, his inheritance. But if the oldest son died with no kids, the younger brother, the next brother, would have to marry his wife in order to perform that duty for his older brother. And, and so we see it with Ruth and Naomi. That's the story of Ruth and Naomi. And Ruth becomes part of that Leverite um, vow where he takes the place of, um, of Ruth and, and, and redeems her back and those kind of things. So, um, so they come up with this story they make up and they say, you know, in order this happened, she got married, they all died, nobody. In, the, in heaven, whose wife will she be? And here's what Jesus says in verse 30. For in the resurrection, no, I'm sorry, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. Somebody say power. <laughs> the word is dunamis in the Greek. It means power. And, and so, you know, I love, love, love. I have this verse highlighted in my Bible because it, it applies to every aspect of Christian living. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And so when somebody wants to argue about anything or anywhere, again, it comes back to the premise that it's, is it in the scripture? Is it scriptural? Can we go to chapter? Can we go to verse? Is, is they, they made a mistake. They had this idea, like they rolled out of bed one day and bumped their head and, and got an idea. And then they want to argue with about the idea. And it's like, but you, you're saying this is of God, but you don't know the scriptures. And if you knew the scriptures, Jesus told them, you would know what's true. And so this whole thing is, is about knowing the power of God, but you have to know it according to the scriptures. He said, how'd you guys know the scriptures? You would know this for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Everybody say are like, does that mean when you die, you become an angel and like in, uh, what's that movie, that black and white movie that I just watched that the angel was trying to get his wings. Um, wonderful life. You know, is that what happens? You die, you become an angel, and then you got to come back and get your wings. 
No, you don't become an angel. He didn't say you become angels. He said you become like angels, like the angels are in heaven. And he says, um, they'll be neither marrying nor given in marriage. Now that creates a problem for some folks. It creates a big problem for some doctrines and theology because Jesus says very plainly that there'll be no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. Now, some of you are like, yes. Get rid of that bag. <laughs> Others of you like me are going, no, no. How could heaven even be heaven? Now, listen, I want to tell you about this scripture because it is a little troubling when you think that there's no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. And, and I just want to, and again, I'm out of time and I really should spend some time on it. But I want to encourage you with this. You don't have to worry that heaven's going to be worse than it is here. It's going to be so much better. It's going to be so much greater. It doesn't say that you won't have an eternal and and a long-lasting relationship with the person you love here on earth, that you won't know them intimately and personally through all of heaven. But but I'm telling you, anything that God is going to take away from us here on earth, he's going to replace a hundredfold in heaven. We're going to know true love. We're going to know true power. We're going to know relationships with no flaws. We're going to see people perfect in God's image. And we're going to spend eternity with beautiful people. And, and, and who knows? The Bible says you cannot think or imagine the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So why lose your mind? You know, the Bible says, and the surfers hate this one, that in heaven there's no more sea. And they freak out, what do you mean? No more waves? How's it going to be heaven? And some people say, no more wife? How's it going to be heaven? But I just want to encourage you as we, as we kind of jam through this, that heaven's going to be better than here, I promise. And don't think this says it doesn't. Don't read into this that that doesn't mean that you won't know your, your spouse for eternity or you won't have a relationship. But, you know, if you had a bad relationship, this should be encouraging. You don't have to worry about it. No marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. But you'll be like the angels who are eternal. We don't need to procreate in heaven. You know, there, for a thousand years of millennial reign, there'll still be kids being born. But once we get into eternal heaven, there'll be no more kids being born. It'll, um, and so you won't have to have that function. And it says um, in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So verse 32 says, I, what? Am. Does it say I was? Does it say I used to be? If he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does that mean about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That they're still alive. If they're dead and gone and there's no resurrection and they return to the earth with no soul, like the Sadducees believed, then he, w- then he would have to be the God. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before they died. But he doesn't say I was. And Jesus makes a whole doctrine out of one little word in the Old Testament that's so important and so crucial to scriptures. I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we read that and we pass over it. And Jesus stops and comes back to it and says, look, there's meaning in even this, this little word I am. And that, that, that the word I am is there instead of the word was or anything else has value and has meaning. And the word of God has value and has meaning. Word of God is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between the bone and the marrow. And, and so in that, Jesus is also throwing another jab, dig, um, truth at the Sadducees in this little story that he's a God of the living, not a God of the dead. There is a resurrection because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well during this time and today, and God is a God of the, of the living. Amen? So the good, good, good part of this chapter starts in verse 34. But it's 1130, so I'm going to have to let you guys go. 
you got to come back next week for the uh, greatest commandment. Man, so powerful next week. That's kind of was the big crescendo for today's sermon, and I didn't get to it. So next week, come back, and we're going to go over uh, what it means to uh, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said the greatest commandment that there ever was was to love God and, and first and then love your neighbor, and we're going to unpack that. Maybe it's good that we have to stop here because we'll really spend a little more time next week on that section of what it means to love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen?